Check one, check test. There we go. Did you hear any of that? <laughs> um, so anyway, it's, it's, it, it's fun to see you through my eyes and not through Drew and, and Leon's eyes. So as we read our gospel passage this morning, why don't we stand together? This is the gospel according to Matthew, beginning chapter 11, verse 34. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. If anyone loves their father or mother more than me, they're not worthy of me. And anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Now, Father, as we read these words, we ask that the Holy Spirit, who inspired them to be written, would, as Leon said, inspire our hearts to hear them, give us childlike hearts to respond to them through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning we're going to focus on that verse that says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me, and that idea that whoever finds their life, will, whoever's looking for their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for the sake of Christ will find us. Now, an effect of Jesus' coming meant that everybody had to make a decision about it. Like, Jesus was not this secretive kind of little person who, you know, just walked around saying obscure things in small, dusty cities. There was, in his culture, in his time, a really huge splash. And neutrality was not really possible. I mean, you might have wondered about him or something, but at some point, everybody had to make a decision about Jesus. And the effect of that decision often led to division even within families. Now, we've all lived through that in the last seven or eight years in a way that lots of us would have never imagined before that. When people were making decisions about political figures or about um, things in the pandemic or whatever, and it started dividing families, right? We all can feel that. That's what's happening here. We can never imagine Jesus advocating for conflict. He wasn't saying, I came to produce this. He was saying that a common element that comes with the choice to follow him is that people are going to disagree with you and that you're going to have to count the cost of following him. This is what he means when he says, taking up your cross 
is a way of finding your life. Living in kind of self-assertion is a way of losing your life. And so what Jesus is trying to do in this passage is to help us sort out our priorities and to show us that allegiance to him has to be the greatest significance in our lives. And so the invitation here this morning, Jesus, our teacher, and how in becoming Jesus' student in kingdom living and making that the first priority of our life, that's what transforms us. That's what gives us a shot. That's what gives Todd Hunter a shot at being a a, um, decent human being. Without apprenticing myself to Jesus, without making myself a student, a follower of Jesus and his way of life in the kingdom, I have no shot at being a good husband. I have no shot at being a good father. I I don't have a good shot at being a supervisor at work or a business owner or somebody who punches a clock. Like, we just don't have a shot at doing anything well without making this really kind of counterintuitive decision that laying down our lives in this cruciform way that Jesus modeled is what actually allows us to pick up the kind of life that God intended for us to have in all the interactions of our lives, family, work, neighbor, etc. So what this passage is teaching us is the way to all that goodness of, you know, good humanity, good parenting, good spousal relationships, being a good neighbor, all that. The way to do that, the lens through which we are invited to make sense of our lives, its people, the events of our lives, is what's known as cruciform living. And cruciform is just kind of a fancy word for cross at the center. That cruciform living is central to following Jesus. It's central to Christian spirituality. That losing one's life, denying oneself, is the key to finding real and lasting life. And this isn't a bummer. There's a big, stunning uh, promise attached to it. That those who lose their life will actually find a new life And this new life has the quality of eternity attached to it. So eternal life, as far as I know, there's only one straightforward definition of it in the Bible. And that's John 17, 3, where Jesus says, and this is eternal life. What is it? That they would know you, my father, and the son who you have sent. So this makes us aware that eternal life is not spatial, you know, S-P-A-T-I-A-L. Meaning eternal life's not out there in space somewhere, wherever God might be above the heavens. That's not eternal life. And eternal life isn't quantitative. It, it's not just more of life. It's not simply duration. Eternal life is a different kind of life rooted in relationship with the Trinitarian God. So uh, think of it this way. Um, think that this mic stand here, just picture it as a potted plant, right? Not a fake plant, not a plastic one, but a real indoor plant. So this plant has a certain sort of life. This plant is aware of the relative moisture in the soil. It's aware of the nutrients of the soil. If it was a palm tree, the palm fronds are aware of the relative moisture in the air. This plant has a certain sort of life. Now, switching, what if there was a playful little kitty cat here on the pulpit or better on the end of the stage? 
and I've got a red ball in my pocket, and I take it and I toss the ball down the center aisle, what does the cat do? cat jumps down and chases the ball and begins to play with it, right? What does the plant do with reference to the ball? Nothing. Why? Because while it has a certain kind of life, it's dead to the realm of play. The plant hasn't, doesn't have the quality of play. cat does. Again, switching metaphors, what if there was a sofa here and when you know, one of your little daughters or my little daughters was young and we're you know, doing flashcards and daddy says, four times four is. And my little daughter Carol says, 16. Well, does the cat stop playing with the ball and go, I'll be darned. Four times four is 16. Well, no, why? Because while the cat is alive to the realm of play, it's dead to the realm of mathematics. It doesn't have that sort of life. If Jesus were standing here this morning, not me, he would be looking you in the eye and saying, please, whatever you do, lay down your life as you currently know it. And that's different for all of you, for all of us. For some people, we have you know, huge like privilege attached to that. We might think there's lots of the things of this life that are attached to that. Others might think, Lord, I have hardly anything. And you're asking me to have the little, the little I have to lay down? But yes, Why? so that you can pick up a superior kind of life, so that you can die to your plant likeness, so that you can die to your cat likeness and become human as God intended. That's the invitation of cruciform living. Cruciform living is not about making you a doormat. It's not about making you less human than you are. It's not about taking the little you might think you have. It's an effort to give you something that is almost incomprehensible. A relationship with the Trinitarian God. Then then revolutionizes your life. And then allows us to then enter our life with a different kind of superior quality. Are you feeling me here? This is all about quality of living. But we hear it. And again, it, I, I get how it's counterintuitive. I really do. And I've been trying to do this since I was 19, and I'm 67, so that's 48 years I've been trying to do this. And I get that it's not easy, it doesn't always make sense, but I just want to say, whenever I've approached this, like if I'm just keeping it real, whenever I've gotten, I feel like anywhere near this, I felt like I was getting towards wisdom. I felt like I was getting towards something that feels really crucial and clear to whatever it meant to be human in the image of God. I, I start to feel grounded. I start to feel like I have a frame for life. So that when I enter into the things of life, whether it's being, again, present to my wife or present to my adult children or present to current injustices, the cross then allows me to figure out what does it mean to be present to that, right? Now, there's lots of other factors, lots of other noise that could be going on in my head. But what allows that noise, negatively speaking, you know, to be stilled and allows me to see something appropriate, to have a lens that's right, it's this sense of a self-emptying life that's rooted in the pattern of the cross of Jesus my own self-emptying for the sake of others, that's what always makes things make sense. Again, not in a bad way of becoming a doormat. You just can't imagine, right? Can you imagine, Jesus, that that's what he's advocating? Of course not. The self-emptying here has like the 
has like the, the essence of God himself in it, who became incarnate in his son. Are you feeling me? Or think of Philippians, and the son didn't consider that equality with God something to be grasped. He self-emptied. He let go of it. And now he's worshipped forever, rightly, and will be forever because of that self-emptying thing. So what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this cruciform living that Jesus is calling us to, it's the thing. There is nothing else to move on to. There's nothing higher to move on to. There's no philosophy. There's no political platform. There's no form of deconstruction. There's nothing more central than this. One of the great Greek commentators on the New Testament says, the cross determines the pattern of Christian discipleship and ministry as living for others at whatever personal cost. And that paradigm of self-giving for the sake of others is what it means to follow Jesus. And so when we take on that cruciform life, we're able to move from, again, that plant likeness, that cat likeness, and become human as God intended through the giving of ourselves for others. Richard Hayes, who's a noted New Testament scholar, says that the cross is the shocking event that reveals the deepest truth about the character of God. The cross shatters the world system of authority and knowledge. And thus our whole way of seeing the world is turned upside down. He goes on to say the word of the cross is the deepest logic of the gospel. It's God's shocking intervention to save and transform the world. So this cruciform living, think of it as just the power of God working in us to remake us and through, remake, and through remaking us, bringing healing to the world. I mean, I so much today, so much of my life the last two or three years when I'm just kind of, you know, left to my own thoughts and quiet parts of the day. I just want to sit with the wounded and weeping de-churched. All those who are just ticked off, skeptical, bitter at the church. And just say to them, everything you dream and wish to be true about religion, about the church, it's realized in the cross of Christ. But then I want to say to them, don't just wish the church would be fixed by the cross, that the church would be fixed by dying to its misuse of power, but to have the true and good religion you desire to fill the whole world, we must all also invite death to self into our own lives. Like, it's not good enough to just say the church is stupid. Well, yeah, of course, sometimes it is. Or the church does dumb stuff or, in, or participates, is complicit with injustices. Yes. And, and, and some of us are coming to recognize that. But it's not enough to just recognize that and to criticize and deconstruct. The path to cruciformity is only taken by those who have been captivated by the wisdom and power of God in the crucified Jesus. Wishing that the church would become cruciform by definition, means I wish I would become cruciform. Now, in John 10, when Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, you may, may remember that passage. He does so four times in that short passage on a cruciform basis where he says, I am the good shepherd because, remember, 
I lay down my life for the sheep. This is what it means to have life in God, life in Jesus, cruciformity. It means that we, we, we begin to see that our life is not about ourselves, but for the sake of others. Now, amongst like sort of traditional Anglicans or whatever, um, I'm fairly often jokingly sometimes seriously criticized for the name of our diocese. Churches for the sake of others. But let me just say, and in case it gets out in the Twittersphere, that's a hill I'm willing to die on. I am for the sake of others. Whenever I've had churches, they're meant to be for the good of the city, for the sake of others. And the diocese I lead is meant to be a group of churches who are outposts of Jesus' person, the kingdom he brought to bear, who look at me, was brought to bear shockingly through death on a cross. That's what no one saw coming. Right? We hear about this every Holy Week. But like here today, no one saw that coming. That the way the kingdom would come would be cruciform. Well, why do we think it would be any different today? That the way the kingdom comes to my life is through finding cruciformity. And the way the kingdom will come to our communities is the church finding its own death to self. Becoming human as God intended. Because remember that death to self is always death to something inferior. To the life that Jesus wants to give us in the Trinity and in himself. Again, we're laying down plant likeness to become human as God intended. And in that humanity, it's always for the good of others. So this, I think, is the invitation to us this morning from this gospel reading. I think the invitation is for us to consider that the wisdom of this world is on its way out. Its days are numbered. And again, I think if Jesus were standing here, he'd say, don't hitch your wagon to it. Whether that wisdom comes from the right or the left or the middle or wherever it comes from, it's on its way out. It hasn't fixed anything. It's not likely to fix everything anytime soon. But the invitation to us this morning is to submit to God's cruciform way of being and ministering, which transcends and should help us make sense of any other sort of pseudo-wisdom making its way in the world. For the cross is the wisdom through which the new world of God is being born. So this morning I'm asking you, in your life and your work, to trust the story the ethos and the power of the cross. And to see that Jesus was right, it's the central basis for life and faithful witness today. I'm asking you to put your full trust in the wisdom of God and again in the cruciform way in which the kingdom came. I wish we could just go take a retreat together for three days and just sit with the thought the cruciform way in which God's kingdom came and is coming and will finally hit its telos, its intended purpose. Nothing's going to change. The whole way this story comes to God's fullness is through the cross. So this then alerts us that the God of human desire, of expectation, the idols, the various sexualities or consumerism, the diverse assertions of political ideologies, 
these things can never deliver on their promise. But the famous commentator Gordon Fee said, the cross, on the other hand, is the ultimate power and final wisdom of God. Now, lots of you in the room, I'm sure, if I just even said Galatians 2.20, you could probably quote the text. But let's just remember this famous text together where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And so now the life that I live in the body, think again of the plant, the cat, the fully human one. The life now fully human in God that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and was crucified for me. Who gave himself for me. So now just hear that again. And I'll bet for many, many of you, the first time this text ever really touched your heart or your your soul, you might have even found yourself weeping at the knowledge that I have been crucified with Christ. And I, that old me, that plant-like, cat-like me, no longer lives. But Christ lives in me. And so now the life I live in the body... I live by faith in the Son of God. And what characterizes the Son of God? He loved me and was crucified for me. He gave his life for me. And it's that first love that I'm inviting you to be in touch with this morning. And I want to invite you to relive it this morning. To call to your heart and mind that first love that was probably mixed with childlike confidence probably mixed with humble wonder. It's that first love that we must constantly refresh in ourselves and bring with us into our discipleship and our work of evangelism and justice-seeking. I often say to myself, Todd, you have been crucified And that alone makes you God's agent of healing, repair, and salvation in the world. I have been crucified. Think this thought with me. I have been crucified. And that alone makes me God's agent of healing, repair, and salvation in the world. Amen.